iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yo, technology, what is it all about? The education sector, the learning sector, is going to go through exactly the same type of disruption that's happened in the music and the media industry really early on in the race because what we're seeing at the moment is a adaptation of an analog model we're yet to really see the left field whatever it is that's going to really impact learning and i hope that that really left field thing comes from pearson lectures in the metaverse um, with with mark zuckerberg absolutely <laughs> Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. Thank you for tuning in. How are we all doing? I'm doing great. And this week, we have a bit of a different one for you. So, you know, usually we have on startup founders, people who are early on in their journey that they hope will change the world or make them a bunch of money or ideally both. Andy Bird, who is today's guest, is not that. Bird is the chief executive of Pearson, which is the world's largest education company. They're worth nearly nine billion pounds uh, listed in London. It is also, I believe, the oldest. It is 177 years old, so not exactly a startup. However, Bird is relatively new to the job, and what he's doing is basically trying to remake Pearson on the fly to kind of start up a fire, if that makes sense. We have this fusty old company, which is known for printing textbooks for university students. And he's trying to completely rearrange that model around technology. And it's just a really fascinating case study in transforming a company and trying to do it while you're flying the plane, so to speak, and doing it around new technology and trying to figure out what that might enable. So what he's doing at Pearson specifically is he's basically taking the entire catalog of textbooks putting them all on an app and then selling a monthly subscription to it. I think it's 10 or 15 bucks per month. And the app has all these kinds of features that obviously a normal textbook doesn't. You can highlight, create playlists of chapters, which sounds super exciting. Um, text to audio, all kinds of stuff. That is what the company has just launched. It's called Pearson Plus. They're doing it first in America, then soon for the rest of the world. And what Bird is really trying to do is basically do to education what Spotify did to music, Netflix did to movies. Um, so it's just a really interesting experiment, and it's not the first time he has tried something like this. So previously, he spent 15 years at Disney, which of course has gone all in on streaming and its own kind of technological transformation as well. He stepped down as chairman of the international arm in 2018, but he was involved in uh, the kind of early efforts to help the, move the company into this digital streaming age as well. Didn't quite work out as he planned, but obviously the company's learned a few things and Disney Plus doing quite well. Anyhow, if you are interested in just how tech is just kind of coming for different industries, how it's upending kind of everything uh, sooner or later. And you want to take a look at how this just one kind of traditional old company is attempting to remake itself for the modern age. You will love this. So it's relevant whether you're an entrepreneur or just interested in technology generally or just the future of education and what that might look like. This is the pod for you. So that is what we have for you today, and I will now hand it over to Andy Bird, who is the chief executive of Pearson. You'll like this one. Enjoy. You say cooking with gas, or you still say on gas? Uh, cooking on gas, I think. <laughs> I would guess. 
I've never, you know, I've never really thought about it. Because I was in London for 13 years. And it yeah. was whenever somebody said cooking on gas, it always struck me as funny because we say cooking with gas. But well, yeah. what a perfect lead in to our discussion today. <laughs> the march of technology and progress, etc. I thought that's what we're here to talk about. Yeah. The, mod- the modernization <laughs> of Britain's infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. That's for a different podcast. Well, thanks for taking the time. So I had a little mess around with the Pearson app, which I must admit going in, I was like, oh, God. A yet another app by a fusty old company. This thing's going to suck. It's actually pretty cool. Oh, thank you. And I say this because I went to a school at UC Santa Barbara, and I distinctly remember arriving there and how much textbooks cost. It was many, many hundreds of dollars. And it was every every quarter. And it was like, oh my God, you have to set aside like $1,000 for the year for textbooks. And it was crazy. And there's a whole exchange with used textbooks, etc. But I'm curious, it feels like you're trying to become like the... Um, the Spotify of textbooks or something like that, or Netflix or whatever you want to call it, subscription-based. But like, we're doing something similar at the newspaper of just trying to get people to do digital subscriptions as opposed to, you know, sales at the, at the corner kind of press agent, which doesn't really exist anymore. How is that shift going? And do those numbers actually work? Or is that still to be determined? You know, making up for what you've lost with this new, whatever it is, 10 or 15 bucks a month for access to all of your stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's a number of factors driving the decision to launch Pearson Plus and go direct to consumer. The first is actually, you know, as we've seen with music, as we've seen with media and entertainment, the ability and the requirement to actually create a relationship. So to move from transactional to relationship with the consumer is so important. And we didn't do that as a company. And so I felt it really important to start to create that relationship. Even in textbooks, which are kind of, you know. Even in textbooks. Well, you see, what's interesting <laughs> for the economics, to your point, was, yes, textbooks cost a lot of money. And part of the reason for that pricing was not only the cost of creating the content and, and printing and distribution and all of that stuff, was actually sort of the leakage. You know, on average, a Pearson textbook is turned six times. And we only get paid for the first sale. Yeah. And so maybe like you're, so when you're at UC Santa Barbara, you know, you, you, you shell out all this money for the textbook and then you go and resell it to try and recoup some of your investment. Yeah, for sure. Onto the secondary market. And in Pearson's case, you know, we estimate there's about 14 million units at any one time of our textbooks on the secondary market. Right. So what we're trying to disrupt is not the demand side you know, the demand is still going to come through creating great content that faculty want to their, their students yeah. to study. It's more on the supply side, where if we can kind of make it a no-brainer for a student to access their content in a convenient way, but also in an affordable way through Pearson Plus, that benefits the student. And frankly, it benefits Pearson because it will reduce that secondary market. There'll be no need for a student to go search for secondhand textbooks when they can get the latest and greatest in digital format with a load of enhanced features in a really nice you know user interface within a, an app for Pearson plus so that's the you know the thinking around the pricing plus i do think you know we're a company that has a real social purpose and that's what attracted me to joining pearson you know we're a company that affects individuals lives our outcomes you know have real meaning and purpose and impact and one of the things I'd seen, we'd all experienced during the pandemic has been this sort of digital divide in many forms. Yeah. And affordability and accessibility is part of that. And so by offering, as you say, $9.99 or $14.99 for the entire library, it kind of takes that away, you know, a lot of that pressure away from the student. So a number of factors that's in there. And the, and the math, it works. It works out. Right. And I'm, I'm curious... Do the universities care one way or another, like how, how the textbooks are delivered and, and, you know, kind of, does it matter to them? There's, do they have like a, a financial dog in the fight? They don't have a financial dog in the fight per se directly vis-a-vis ourselves. I do know because we spend a lot of time talking to faculty, a lot of our authors, we have over 3,000 authors, a lot of oh. our authors are also faculty and the cost of student materials is is important to them 
And you know, what I think is interesting is not only is the delivery mechanism of the app, but what you can then do with the content. It's like deconstructing a textbook. So if you think of the, you know, the analogy I use back to the world of music is you know, the evolution of music went from the vinyl album with 12 songs on it to the digital CD with 12 tracks on it yep. to the iTunes individual, you know, thanks to Napster and MP3 and the like, to not needing to own music anymore, but pay for access to 40 million songs through Spotify. Mm. You know, if you take that analogy and look at the textbook as being the book with 12 chapters yeah. that move to a simple digital version of the same, you know, the CD version of the textbook digitally kind of under glass, the Kindle kind of experience. Yeah. Now we're able to take and almost deconstruct the elements of the chapters so you can start to create playlisting. So this mm. opens a world of opportunity for faculty, you know, where the professor can suddenly st- start to prescribe chapters two, four, and eight from this book and one, right. three, and six, and you'll be able to amalgamate them and bring them together. And the student has no need to own these textbooks, Yeah, just pays for access at a very affordable rate. And it allows us then to think about other ways of delivering content, supplemental content around that core textbook proposition. A playlist of textbook chapters. There's something kind of very modern and also if I'm, I'm glad I'm not a student anymore. <laughs> well, you know what? Someone, I was, talking, I, I was talking to someone on Friday and, and you'd be surprised. I mean, one of the other things is I think we've all experienced is how important learning is to all of us hmm. and how learning doesn't stop when you finish education. You know, at Pearson in the first half of this year, 77% of our employees have reskilled or upskilled. They've taken some form of learning, right. 77%. And I was talking to someone on Friday uh, about the Pearson Plus app, and they were saying, is this available to me as an individual, not as a college student? And this was someone you know, in their advanced years. And what was interesting was you know, this individual studied economics when they were at college. Economics has moved on over the last 30 years. Mm. I'd really be interested in just seeing what the latest thinking is. And, and so I think there's an aspect of that that goes way beyond the college. In, in, in a sense, we're all learners for life, and we all are going to need to adapt and you know, seek knowledge and learn about digital or podcasting or whatever it happens to be. Well, it's funny. Uh, just hearing you talk, and I don't know why it made me think of this, but I was just reading about the um... – the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit against the studio, which is, I think is really interesting because it's all part of this, you know, it's business model. Yes. And she's saying, basically, I was supposed to get X percent of the theatrical release. You just release it straight to HBO Max at the same time. Less people saw in the theater, you're taking my money. I'm just trying to figure out who who loses here or where the backlash might come from of because we've seen it in every industry. When you completely change the model, it was first it was the labels who were all up in arms in the music industry, and now it's Hollywood is being completely scrambled right now in terms of where the money flows to and who the power players are and everything else. Like, how does that look in terms of education? Because it feels like this is potentially you know a huge shift, and it feels pretty inevitable just because you know the technology is marching that way. Yeah, and, you know, as we were developing Pearson Plus, we engaged a lot with faculty, with students around the whole UI and design. It's really an app built by students, for students. And then the third cohort were were our authors, were our talent. I think where, you know, because we've got to make sure that they are made whole in all of this, as you've just been mentioning. I think where it's slightly different in the world of education is this prescription of textbooks by the faculty to the student. And we're not changing that. So if, you know, Professor Danny sold a million textbooks a year in the analog world, we're not disrupting the volume at the front end. Yeah. What we're disrupting is the access, the supply side to that for the students. So author Danny is made whole from a royalties perspective because the same volume of, of textbooks are being 
transacted, as it, as it were. They're just being accessed in a different way by the students. Right, right, right. So you're kind of disrupting yourself in a way. Kind of disrupting ourselves, and yes, and also the, the, the other distribution channels and this secondary market. If we can alleviate that, you know, those 14 million units equates to about half a billion dollars of lost revenue. So it's a significant opportunity. 14 million times the six times it's turned over by the time they, before they go out of circulation. Correct. Times the unit cost of, right. of the book. Yeah. Right, right. That's real money. Yeah. Yeah. Can we go backward? Sure. Because you're calling me from, where are you? Are you in Burbank or where are you? I'm in near Santa Monica in Los Angeles. Lovely. Beautiful part of the world. Your accent obviously gives you away. You are not from Santa Monica. I'm going out on a limb. Or I'm a very good impersonator. <laughs> so like, where did you grow up? What's the winding path that took you out here? Okay, the elevator pitch is yeah. 17-year-old student working in Sainsbury's in Macclesfield in northern England. Were you on the till? Were you bagging? Were you doing it all? Were you like an all-rounder? I knew where my skills really laid. I was in the <laughs> warehouse. Nice. Uh, and so listening to the radio. And there was a local radio station in Manchester called Piccadilly, now called Piccadilly Radio, now called Key 103, I think. And um, there was a particular DJ, and I fell in love with the way he painted pictures with words. Mm. And I thought that was really brilliant. I studied English literature and language in, at university. And I got out a typewriter and I typed a letter to the station manager saying, I'm really interested in this, fascinated. If there's anything I can do, I'd love to volunteer. And lo and yeah. behold, thankfully, the station manager, Tony Ingham, wrote a letter back to me. And you think of the friction involved back in the day. I know. Yeah, I with know. Postal and all that stuff. And next thing, I was answering the telephones for a, a DJ called Timmy Mallet. Timmy Mallet. I, I don't know if I should know him or not, but... He had everything from a number one hit single in the UK. Oh. Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. Oh, that's him. I, I love that song. She yeah. wore an Itsy Bitsy uh, Teeny... Oh, yeah. Okay. That's yeah, him. That was, yeah. So I did that and it was at the height of... It was, it was, I was very fortunate. I you know, grew up when Manchester was really a hotbed of music. I love music. Yeah. Music is a common theme throughout my career and life. And I would work at the radio station and then go to the Hacienda and spend my late nights, then go to work or school, repeat. Yeah. Went to uh, university in Newcastle and uh, got a gig working on the Tube, a music program at the time, Channel 4. Graduated with a 2-2 because that's all I really aspired to because I knew what I wanted to really do. My passion was in radio. So I went and worked at Piccadilly for six months and then got an offer to move to London and work for Virgin Broadcasting at the start of satellite television. So what, what year was that then? Urgh, maybe the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, yeah. Something around that. Before Sky came along, before B Sky B came along. In fact, there was Super Channel, was one pan-European satellite channel, and the other was this channel called Sky Channel, an individual channel. And we created a precursor to MTV. Mm. And I got in and I, I tried my hand at presenting and soon figured I was not very good at that. How long did you do that for? The presenting bit? Yeah. Oh, oh about a year. Oh, so you properly did it. I used to read the equivalent of MTV News, and I sucked. <laughs> do tapes still exist they do but they are under lock and key they're under lock and key <laughs> but it was a great time it's culture club yeah. it's wham it's uh duran duran it's the height of british pop it's fantastic yeah. and we we're hanging around all these cool artists and doing cool things and i've always been really curious i think curiosity is such a great attribute to to utilize and so I taught myself how to edit, and I taught mm. how cameras worked, and I moved into directing and producing. Okay. And then I ended up, uh, for a short period of time, I worked on my own production company mm. uh, with a gentleman that's known in the UK called Chris Evans. Oh, yes. Um, so Chris and I, both born in Warrington. When I went to university, Chris took my job at Piccadilly Radio. Ah, oh, I see. And when I moved down to London, I 
brought Chris down to London and he of course was great in front of the camera and he and I you know had a production company and we did a children's show for a short period of time for the precursor to GMTV TVAM and we wrote that together and I produced and directed it and then um I went on and did a couple of other things, worked for a wonderful gentleman, Simon Cole, at Unique Broadcasting, back in sort of radio, trying to, beginning of independent television production. And then fast forward to 93, multi-channel television really starts to take off in the UK. BSB has merged with Sky and become B-Sky B. And Ted Turner had come over to launch a thing called Cartoon Network. Oh, Yes. And he just launched that, and I got the gig to become the managing director for Cartoon Network and TNT. And I spent 10 wonderful years working for Turner Broadcasting when it was an independent company and grew Cartoon Network and TCM and TNT, and firstly within Europe. And then I was fortunate enough to oversee all of the international business. Saw Turner acquired by Time Warner, which was okay. And then, of course, famously, infamously, Time Warner was acquired by AOL. Oh, yes. Which wasn't so great. And I, I've always had a mantra that you can pay me as much money as there is in the world. If I'm not having fun, I'm not doing it. Yeah. And I wasn't having fun, so I quit. What were you doing when that merger happened? I was the head of international fraternal broadcasting. I can't, president I or whatever. I can't remember what right. my title was. And why did it suddenly turn unfun? It was just because it was such a, I mean, there's been books literally written on that merger. A bunch of arrogant and ignorant AOLers who came in and didn't take the time to understand our business. They were all in the distribution mm. of shiny silver discs business. They really kind of, it's fun. I remember being in a meeting where they dismissed the impact of broadband. And it's like, hang on a sec, we, we, we know about that because... We're in the satellite business, and you you could learn something from us. We don't need to learn from you. We're the we're the kings of the world. AOL dismissed the importance of broadband. Individual, I was in a meeting. Individuals within AOL wow. were like, "Yeah, no, this was in the shiny silver disc business." Weird. Get get all those subscriptions out. Um, <laughs> and so I quit. I just wasn't having fun. And a gentleman called Bob Iger, I guess, got to hear. The Walt Disney Company that I was not doing much. Legendary Bob Iger. Yeah. And before I knew it, I got a call, you know, through Headhunters and got a call saying in November in England, do you fancy coming out to LA and meeting this guy and seeing where it goes? And, you know, Disney, phenomenal. And LA in November versus London in November, bit of a no-brainer. I mean, you land and then you're kind of like, oh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, ended up long, long, very long story short. You know, spent the afternoon chatting to Bob. Disney was not in a great place when I joined. This is sort well. Of... I was going to say when he brought you out there, was he new in the job? I mean, where was he in his reign? No, he he was still he was still president. And, oh, and I see. CEO. I see. Uh, Mike Leisner was the CEO. There was a lot of noise. The Disney Wars time of Disney. I think Disney's stock was like fifteen bucks something like that at the time. And Bob had actually had the job of creating Walt Disney International before he became president. And he said, look, it's pretty broken. It needs an outsider to come in and fix it. Someone who's naive and innocent, and you look like the gullible type of person who would do that. <laughs> and so before you know it, I'd moved my family to LA and I had the most amazing 15 years of my life. What was the mandate? I mean, because you came in, you're coming to kind of fix it, but what was the goal beyond obviously fixing? What does that mean? Making Disney as a brand and then ultimately, subsequently, rather Pixar and Star Wars and Marvel, brands that were relevant and resonant in individual countries and not, mm. you know, Disney was a one size fits all. Um, you know, I used to go to around Burbank and go, to the US colleagues, okay, hands up those of you who've been on vacation to international. And half the room, I did it for 15 years, half the room puts their hand up, A, because yeah. they're not really listening. And then the point is you cannot go on vacation to international. You know, you go on vacation to individual countries and they have cultures and infrastructure and regulations yeah. and economies that are different. 
And so we used to have the Walt Disney Company China, the Walt Disney Company India, the Walt Disney Company France. They were all representative offices of the US Walt Disney Company. And I'd set out with a mission to go, okay, rather than being the Walt Disney Company China, how do we create the Chinese Walt Disney Company? And rather being the Walt Disney Company India, how do you create the Indian Walt Disney Company? And by just doing that, it was like, what's the market? What's the infrastructure? Who's our consumer? You know, many parallels between you know my time at Disney and, and what was the attraction of joining Pearson. I'm interested because I lived in Spain for a while and I remember we'd see the movie posters and there was like, you know, you speak Spanish, so you kind of translate it. And it's like, it's a bit different, but, you know, so, but like, there's like little things like that. So it kind of lands with the local audience. But are there, are there a couple examples of that come out to the top of your head of like a big franchise that you had to completely kind of rearrange, at least how you marketed it. So it lands with an audience in a different country. Well, I think one of the best examples of the strategy wasn't a franchise, but a whole country. Mm. So if you were to ask you to describe now, what's a typical Disney consumer, you would more likely say single family, mum and dad and the two nuclear children or whatever it happens to be. It's that nuclear family or post-nuclear family, whatever the right term. You know, you go to Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disneyland Paris, that's what you see. And that's what's been the foundation. So yeah. the strategy was to build businesses around that the core consumer proposition. And that was great, largely until you went to Japan. In Japan, 70% of the Disney consumer are young females between 16 and 24, known as Otana. Oh, interesting. You go to Tokyo Disneyland, 70% of the guests are these Otana office ladies. Hmm. And so the whole Disney culture was focused on teenage, late teenage, early 20s females and we're a company making products for mum and dad and the kids. And so we once we decided, okay, what is the Japanese Walt Disney Company look like? And we focused on you know that specific uh, consumer demographic. You know, still to this day, the only country in the world where you can buy a Disney mobile phone is Japan. There's a Disney mobile phone. Yeah, tailored to this female audience it's very very successful and i i, I believe it was it was when i left the company I, I think it still is. Um, but this whole um you know how you design a disney store what your consumer products range is how you market movies to this demographic so you market frozen to a western audience very differently to how you position and market frozen and really play on the emotional aspects of the movie that attract that demographic. Yeah. Yeah, we launched a mobile game, a game called um, Tsum Tsum. And at one at the peak of that game, 5% of the Japanese population were playing it on their mobile phones every day. Whoa. So from the company I joined that where every every decision was made in Burbank. Yeah. And it was a one size fits all. You know, you had domestic and international as these two buckets to actually thinking about bespoke countries and territories and structuring your business around it. You know, put the consumer at the heart of everything you do, which is exactly what we're trying to do at Pearson. Yeah, well, so the other thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of Disney, then we get back to Pearson, is, is the, the streaming aspect of things, which obviously is directly related to what you're doing now. But it was interesting just watching this from afar as a business journalist, but also just a consumer. It was interesting to watch kind of Hollywood, how it reacted to Netflix as it started to get into streaming. And it was like, yeah, we'll sell you all our content and we'll license it all out. And you can just like fill your pipeline with our content. It's fine. Was there a moment when you're at Walt Disney when there was a kind of like, oh, wait a minute they're using our content to eat our lunch. Or was there a moment where it was like a kind of an oh shit moment, uh, so to speak? It was a kind of an aha moment that I had actually, and it was directly relatable to that. We are taking a, a handsome check, but we are building X times much more equity for Netflix yeah. than we are for ourselves. And for a company that also had so much vested in cable, you know, streaming services are kind of, you know, the cord cutting and, and then you had the whole noise around yeah. the SPN. And, and as I looked internationally, you know, within my own sort of jurisdiction, 
I thought, you know, we have to do something about this. So we were much more measured in terms of our relationship with Netflix and others. And in fact, I went to Bob and said, I have an idea for direct-to-consumer service, which is actually more broad than um, Disney+. And he was incredibly supportive. And we actually built something and launched it in the UK. It was called Disney Life. It was not a success. When was that? 2015-ish, something like that. And it was not a success? No. We made it too complicated. Bob mm. said, just stick to video. And he was right and I was wrong because I wanted to put <laughs> <laughs> many times in my life, Bob was proven right and I was proven wrong. But what was great about Bob is he'd let you do it. Yeah. And you know, if you had the courage of your conviction, it's so easy to stop ideas and innovation. But he encouraged it. Um, we overpriced the product for a company that was great at marketing. We sucked at customer acquisition marketing because we'd never done it. Our technology wasn't good enough. And so the user experience wasn't great. And we didn't have the exclusivity of content that you need to drive the service. So, you know, it would have been very easy. A lot of other companies, I think, would have closed, closed it down and gone, oh, that was a big mistake. But, you know, I made the case for, and Bob supported keeping it going to use as a real live laboratory and learning. Yeah which helped, you know, it influenced the acquisition of Bamtech from a technology perspective, brought a lot more talent into the company, which I would like to think in a small way was a precursor to Disney Plus and the success that's been to date. Just thinking, shifting opinion and, th and thinking differently. Yeah, it is interesting now. I mean, <laughs> I've kind of, I play for my internet and then I have just a growing list of subscriptions. I don't know actually if I'm paying less than I was before, but it is, I mean, you have more options and it's a kind of a better experience, but at a certain point I'm like, what show was that? What, what app is this show on? And then you have to cycle through five before you get to that show. It's, it's really interesting to see how it's kind of evolved, but it does feel like there's some questions now that it's, or some signs that like this boom in streaming is at least slowing down a bit. I think maybe people are getting a little fatigued and kind of, you know, you can only have so many. Well, you I mean, it's like many things, you know, those that are at the top, so the Netflixes, the Disneys, some of those other companies are going to thrive because of the quality of their content, Brian. You know, if you're caught in the middle, then I'm going to, you know, I'm worried for those companies caught in the middle. Yes. It's like any other sector. You don't want to be caught in the middle. It's not a great place to be. Yeah, by the way, and, and I think maybe Google and Apple are trying to do this. I love the fact of just put in a, a title and just be told where it is. You exactly. Know, yes. Make life easier because managing all these subscriptions is a little challenging. But we, that's what we want as consumers. We want, you know, the freedom to access, to binge. You know, all of these changing our habits started in music moved to entertainment and then now as as we talk about is moving into learning and education it's about tapping into you know if a student is listening to music in this way is watching their media in this way why wouldn't they learn in this way or have access to their textbooks it, it, it just seems to make logical sense in many ways iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. And then last question on Hollywood. You know, because like the, going back to the Scarlett Johansson um, lawsuit, there does seem to be the model now is like pay a boatload up front for whatever movie or stand-up special or whatever it may be. And then the streamer gets all of the rights on the back end. Do you think that is the new system? And is that a better deal or is it are we in this time of transition where everybody's trying to figure out okay how do i kind of extract the value that i think i deserve out of this new arrangement i think there will be an equilibrium you know as with many things in life the pendulum kind of swings over one way and then there's a correction and overcorrection before it kind of yeah. finds the middle ground i think that's what we're seeing at the moment you know it's like the movie business is such a high risk business and everyone of course, 
you only mention your hits, but you never mention your misses. And, you know, there's an enormous amount of risk capital put into that business. And so, you know, there's going to be some talent who are going to want to have the security of a nice upfront payment. There's going to be, frankly, the more established talent who believe they genuinely are helping the prospects of this film, this movie, who are going to want a bit of participation. And I'm sure they're very smart people in all of these media companies that they'll figure out the appropriate middle ground between, you know, getting paid up front and maybe benefiting, you know, from some form of whatever the new form of back-end participation is. Right. It'll be interesting to see how it evolves. I think it's a really fascinating time. So you're at the company. You're doing all of this fun stuff. You said it's the best 15 years of your life. So how does Pearson, I mean, is it a random call from a headhunter saying, hey, what about this textbook company? I swear it's not boring. Yeah, well, a couple of things were behind it. One was in 2015, you know, I have two sons and they both went to MIU and they were graduated. I'd spent between Turner and Disney 25 years traveling the world. Hmm. And my wife and I had decided that when the boys, had, the youngest had graduated, then I wanted to take a step away from work. And so that was part of the plans. All of those plans were really accelerated when Disney decided to acquire Fox, uh, which predicated a, a restructuring. And then I went off and we had a motto, Caroline and myself, my wife, we figured they had time to figure stuff out. And it was like, I'd been everywhere, seen everything, experienced nothing. And I wanted to spend some time with Caroline and experience life. So we went off and lived in Copenhagen for a summer, you know, just being engaged. And I was resolute after Disney. I was not joining. I was, you know, fortunate to, you know, many companies reached out to see if I would be interested in joining. And I was resolute. I wasn't going to take another media job. Actually, to be truthful in my mind, I wasn't going to take another job. I was done. You were going to glide into retirement, learn how to play the lute and maybe write a novel or something? Well, not write a Maybe learn the lute, but not write a novel. <laughs> <laughs> but just kind of, you know, I tried to be kind of somewhat under the radar and just, you know, disappear into obscurity and enjoy life. Yeah. And I did then. I think I was in Laos or Cambodia or somewhere like that. And I got a call from a headhunter who mentioned Pearson, actually from a board perspective. And I was interested in in a couple of board positions, getting you know, a board position in the U.S. What were you doing in Laos when you got the call? Paint the picture. Uh, I was probably in a relatively modest hotel, waiting to get up really early in the morning and go walk about with the monks as they go and collect their daily provisions. It was one of the most amazing things. You know, we did that in in Bangkok. You get up before sunrise, you know, 4 a.m. or something, and the monks, you know, they go out and the community feeds them and gives them everything. They and, and to walk through Bangkok when it's deserted mm. so early and peaceful and tranquil and just to hear the monks and talk to them and was fantastic. So I was probably doing something like that or doing something more mundane. Like brushing your teeth or something. Or brushing my teeth or something. <laughs> But anyway, they, they, yeah, and, and I've always had a real passion, aside from media, a real passion for education hmm. and, and the impact and the power of learning. Yeah. And, you know, when I was at Disney, you know, one of the best times was every major city I went to, I would make it a point of going to a university and talking to the students hmm. from Shanghai to Moscow to Singapore to the UK and you know I'd just go and because it was fascinating unfiltered really smart minds yeah and I I had contemplated whether or not to actually go and teach at a US college and give something back and so this opportunity came to join the board of Pearson and so I was I said yeah I'll, I'll take a you know I'll take that meeting to Hollywood parlance and um, I really enjoyed uh, the chairman, Sydney, and the board in meeting them. And they thought I'd be quite a good fit. And I thought that from an outsider, I thought this is fantastic because this sector, the education sector, the learning sector is going to go through 
exactly the same type of disruption that's happened in the music and the media industry. And I have a passion for it and an interest for it. And if nothing else, if I can help the company navigate through this disruption and transformation as a board member, wouldn't that be great? Right. So I joined um, uh, just as the pandemic was starting and, and joined as a board member and went through the induction process. And it was during that induction process that I got to meet members of the management team and really get under the hood and understand what was inside Pearson that I just went, wow, this is a gold mine. This is a treasure trove. Right. This is the equivalent of what Disney had, Pearson has, you know, at the heart of both companies is intellectual property. You know, brilliant screenwriters and talent on the Disney side and brilliant authors creating this phenomenal learning, which used to take the form of a textbook. And it's been yeah. totally disrupted and totally broken and the business model's been broken. And they've got assessments and they've got this and they've got global reach, but they don't think about the consumer. They only think about the institution. There's so much low-hanging fruit that we can do to make this such a great and powerful contributor to society, as well as a, a really, really good company from a shareholder investor perspective. And they were looking for a CEO. And so before I knew it in a, in a moment of madness, you know, I said, oh, I'll do that. I can do that. And uh, last October, I did. Were you on the nominating committee? No, there was a lot of noise around that time. And things were written. Yeah, because I didn't know if you had done a Dick no. Cheney, but it didn't sound no, like you did. No, 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 I can assure you, I would, <laughs> never, I would never do that. I did speak to a couple of candidates as part of being on the board, but that was before I myself got involved in the process and was somewhat encouraged by some other board members to do so. It wasn't, oh yeah, I'll do that type thing. I, I, you know, Because as I say, I was sort of on a track to do something else, but it was the compelling rationale and opportunity that kind of in the end sort of made me do it. But no, the, it, at the time, and many things were written last September, I guess, around my appointment. And as with many things, you know, you don't always, always believe what you read. Don't always, unless it's in the Times. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, how, and so you've been, you've been in the American corporate kind of landscape for many moons, as you say. And obviously, I feel like the attitude toward pay out here is much more kind of laissez-faire, kind of like if you make a bunch of money, everybody's like, meh, okay. Were you surprised by the kind of, I don't know what you would call it, pushback, outrage, whatever, at the, you know, the whatever it was, 9 million signing bonus, whatever it is that you got. Did I give you pause at all? Or were you kind of braced for that? I was kind of braced for it in, in many respects. I don't pay too much attention to the noise. I understand a bit. A lot of it is the context of where Pearson had been as well as a company mm. with six or seven profit warnings, some very patient shareholders. I did also, I think some of the things that got have maybe got lost in all of the noise was I, w I did want to show my own commitment to the company and I put $3.75 million of my own money in. Oh, into shares. Yeah. And that's conveniently is sometimes... I have not seen any coverage of that. Yeah. I'm sure it's in the Times, but I haven't seen it. I'm, well, one was sure. But that was a prerequisite of the co-investment. It's a co-investment award. So the company would offer me the opportunity over three tranches to have three times my investment. I see. And I put in 3.75, you know. So I look at it, and particularly from a year, that is not controversial at all. And in fact, as a shareholder, I would hope that I'm trying to align interests. Well, it doesn't matter how much you got. Yeah, that's serious money. He's got some skin in the game here. You know, he seems to be aligned with us. So, you know, it is what it is. And I understand the context and the, there are certain, you know, regulations one has to get used to within the UK market context that are very different to the US market context. It is what it is. You know, I think since I joined, the stock has appreciated 60% or something like that, 60% plus. So hopefully those shareholders are, are, are somewhat satisfied. You know, we're only just starting. It's only eight months into it. But um, I didn't do this job for the money. I did it for, because I really believed in the company and I believed in the purpose of the company. And that's 
the honest truth. Um, I'm very fortunate I don't need to do this. I wanted to do it. Right. I'm curious, have you seen, you know, because there's a lot of press, rightly, I think, around the level of student debt out here. It's 1.7 trillion now or something. It's really getting kind of out of control. And there's a whole kind of, and this is a little bit of a Silicon Valley bubble, but you talk to people out here and they're like, well, you know, maybe university, that whole model is kind of itself dying and about to be disrupted because you have a lot of companies that are more like, you know, these coding schools that have a profit share. So they're free up front and then they take a share of your whatever you start earning once you get a job on the back end. So it's more kind of interests aligned, things like that. But it does feel like there's a a moment building, if it's not already here, around higher education itself, the very model that, you know, the, the bodies you're serving. I don't know if you've seen any effects of that in your business or the conversations you've had with the universities or kind of what your take is on where things are there? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting and it's something we've started to, to look at ourselves. I do think the pandemic has forced individuals to rethink whether it's parents, four years of my life, 200 grand of debt or whatever it is, for what? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's a legitimate question. And so I do think, look, if you're an Ivy League college, supply and demand and all of that stuff, it's back to, you know, if you're at the top, you're going to be okay. If you're in a college in the middle, I'm going to be concerned. Mm. What is the purpose of a degree? It's really a passport to employment in many ways. It's a validation, a certification of a set of skills or knowledge or whatever, however you describe it. You know, now there's opportunities to have more practical alternatives to that. Um, as you say, this disintermediation of the workforce where you've got companies taking, you know, bank clerks and reskilling them to become cybersecurity experts and playing the labor arbitrage is real. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got companies who are offering really great sort of in-employment learning opportunities all the way up to get your own degree. So learn as you earn. And then alternative forms of accreditation and certification. And so I think all of these is, is going to create, you know, challenges on the traditional model. It, education, formal education, high school, and uh, certainly college education, it hasn't changed for what, 100 years? Yeah. Um, One would argue? Yeah, a long time. You go into your typical university college and you walk into a lecture theater, it's no different than the 1950s, 1960s. Yeah, okay, there's a bit more technology, uh, whiteboards, I guess. But the principles of it largely have remained unchanged. And I think some of the progressive US, ASU is one of our partners, uh, Arizona State University. And what President Crow's done there is pretty remarkable. In terms of, you know, ASU was kind of like party college. Oh, yeah. Um, And now they're one of the leading research colleges in the United States, if not the world. Oh, really? And some of the innovation that's coming out of that faculty is unbelievable. From their space program to what they're doing in VR, it's uh, separately. I mean, and there's others. Northeastern, another of our partners, similarly. So it's forcing colleges and universities to kind of rethink their own business model, to rethink who they are, what they're doing, what service they're providing, because the consumers have choice and they'll they'll kind of vote, as it were, with their pocketbooks. But is that the idea then, just stepping back, like if you're thinking about the context of higher education and like, you know, all these different industries are sooner or later being disrupted by technology and what it allows you to do. If in, I don't know, it doesn't feel like it's going to happen tomorrow, but if in 10 years or 20 years, you know, a huge swathe of higher education is atomized into all these different options, is what you're doing with Pearson Plus effectively a defense against that? Be like, okay, we're, we, are, we are this consumer brand that no matter what you are doing or what you need, you can have our app and use it for whatever, at whatever school you are or whatever thing you're studying. Is that the idea? In essence, yes, but it will go beyond the textbook to a whole host of other services. It, be, it will become, Pearson Plus will become like a digital learning ecosystem. 
And I want consumers to trust Pearson to deliver the most effective learning solution to you at key moments in your life. Back to this, you know, lifetime of learning notion. And so we're starting Pearson Plus in the US, but we will roll it out globally. And we're starting with this core demo because I think, you know, college students are an interesting demographic because they're really the first pure digital generation. They've yeah. just grown up. And so they adopt very quickly. And, and the insights we've had from the students as we develop Pearson Plus have been fascinating. Uh, but, you know, I think our sweet spot's going to be sort of 16 to 30 year olds as you go through college or before college, into college, and then out the other side into your career and help you navigate as you get through the first early stages mm. of your career. I think it's a really interesting space. And to be able to do that globally and create this global platform. And so what does that mean? So you say beyond textbooks, because that's kind of, I mean, that's obviously the basic understanding of what, you know, the company's legacy. But moving forward into this brave new world, what does that include? Like, what else is, are you going to lob in there? Well, you think about um, intellectual, you know, the heart of the company's intellectual property. It used to take the form of a written word in, and the printed page. It can now take audio. It's a massive feature amongst students. You know, if for nothing else, what they want to do is play back at one and a half or double the speed so they can get through a 60-minute podcast in 30 minutes. Yeah. Video, gaming, I think virtual reality is going to be a really interesting, you know. Are you going to be a metaverse company? Well, I'm waiting for <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg to figure that one out. And then, then, then I can learn a lot. Um, but, but this notion, I mean, you know, another analogy is I'm a big fan of what Peloton have done. What do you mean? Well, you think about, and I think it's, a, it's quite analogous to the world of education. You know, traditional fitness studio, four-wall fitness studio, instructor at the front of the class. Yeah. 20, 30 members, whether it's in a soul cycle type environment or in a fitness, you know, doing whatever fitness studio. They created this global platform. It happened to take the form of a bike, but, you know, suddenly the walls are blown open. So you, the four walls fall down. You have the opportunity to choose the teacher who resonates with you. Yeah. You know, how many times when you were at school did you like or not like a subject because you liked or didn't like the teacher? Yeah. Or the way the teacher taught. So, you know, with Pella, you can choose your favorite teacher, you can choose your genre, you can choose duration, you do it live, you do it or asynchronously or a mixture of both. There's a sense of community that's built around. And then from that one core proposition, they move out into other areas of fitness and wellness. And so it's thinking about Pearson moving from being the education publishing company to being really this worldwide leader in digital learning. You know, we're going to become much more like a digital learning media company than an educational publishing company. The core, of the, uh, you know, the DNA is the same. The opportunity, you know, 5G, you know, the impact that's going to have on the ability, not just with speed, but again, affordability. Yeah. It's the old Moore's law, you know, which will increase accessibility. I think that's really important to gain because the fastest way out of poverty for society is education. Yeah. We as a company, we, I think we have a duty to try and help on that journey. And what, was there any, I mean, they hired you, obviously, so they, I'm sure you had to make your pitch, but was there any resistance to this because you're kind of coming into this company that is, you know, a billion years old or however old it, <laughs> however old it is? 177, I think. Yeah. With a very, you know, set business, and obviously it started to struggle with all these profit warnings, but was there anybody, was there, within the company, was everybody like, okay, yeah, we're just going to do this complete digital dive into this whole new world or was it was there resistance i mean how was that received because turning around big companies is um as you obviously know is difficult it's very difficult and a challenge i don't underestimate the challenge and doing it during a pandemic you know i'm your virtual ceo um has been kind of interesting and and has presented opportunities as, as well but 
Within the board and the senior management, zero. And I think part of the role of CEO is when you're going through change, especially is to virtually hold people's hands and make them understand, communicate, which has been great being able to do Zooms for covering large portions of the company very efficiently. But, you know, getting people to understand it's about storytelling, figure out what the narrative is and then start internally to explain why we're doing this why you can be part of this journey, why it's important, and then you know, marrying that with then the external messaging. You know, what, what was very gratifying with Pearson Plus is over 90% of the employees who worked on it were doing something else within the company. So this isn't like you know, bringing in a whole new cohort. Yes, we have a group now that's focused solely on direct-to-consumer I hope when you sampled the app that you recognize sort of the consumer grade quality of it. This doesn't look yeah, like yeah. An, in, an institutional learning app. Um, it's something that can sit alongside the Spotify's and others in terms of UI. And, and so we have a group in the Bay Area who are focused on all of that stuff. But the rest is, you know, refocusing and redirecting the brilliant talent we have within this company to go create a, an exciting product like Pearson Plus. So I have two more questions, and I'll let you go because I know we're over on time. One is from Disney Life and that not working. Is there something that you learned there that you're like, oh, okay, that's a good lesson that we will then apply to what you're doing now at Pearson? And then two, are you bummed out that you don't get, I presume you got to go to like the Vanity Fair Oscars party and all that cool glamorous stuff, and now you're an education company based in Britain. Do you miss those perks? On the, I'll answer the second one first. Yeah. I never went. You never went? Why? I wasn't into <laughs> that. I'd just rather fly a bit under the radar. I'd go to premieres of our films. I never once went to the Oscars. Who wants to sit in an uncomfortable seat for four hours? Uh, I don't. Me neither. So, And I wasn't really into the parties and the that sort of thing. I was. I tried to be, you know as anonymous as I possibly could be within the vagaries of the world that is Hollywood. Right. And then to the first question around the learnings was around, you know, really making sure we engaged and understood the consumer, the student, made sure the technology really worked. And, um, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about pricing and, and making sure that it's just a good consumer proposition. But at the same time, look, it's not going to be 100% right. And acknowledging that and making sure that, you know, it's back to the Peloton analogy or whatever. Yeah, well, all we've done is switch on the treadmill. And it, now it's about constant iteration. It's about constantly, you know, evaluating, listening, changing, adopting as we move forward. As the world of learning adopts and moves and transforms and changes, we just want to... On those changes to the learning world, that analogy of like, whatever, a marathon or a football match or whatever, what minute are we in? Really early on in the race, because what we're seeing at the moment is a adaptation of an analog model. We're yet to really see the left field, whatever it is, that's going to really impact learning. And I hope that that really left field thing comes from Pearson. Lectures in the metaverse. Uh, with with Mark Zuckerberg, absolutely. <laughs> and that is all the time we have. I want to thank Andy for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening. As always, thank you for the ratings. Thank you for the reviews. Thank you for those occasional tips in the Acast creator feature. Always awesome to get those. And I think I'll be writing uh, something about Pearson in the paper this week, expanding on on our interview here. So if you want to check that out, please go to thetimes.co.uk and look for that this Sunday. I'm also on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it. Have a fabulous weekend, and we will talk to you next week.
Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.